We're finishing up uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked about over the past few weeks that Jesus is, is done, in a sense, with his teaching section. He's, he's talked about what is life like in the kingdom, what are the people of the kingdom like, what's, what's kind of the heart of the people of the kingdom, and then in chapter 7, he turned to application, right? It took him couple verses, it's taking us a month to walk through his uh, application where he says it's time to choose. Uh, and he gives us several examples of how we choose. There are, are two ways. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. There's the broad way and the narrow way. You must choose one. There's, there's two trees that bear two different kinds of fruit. We saw that last week. And today we're going to see two claims from two different groups that come before Jesus. Next week we'll see two houses, two foundations that houses are built upon. So last week we saw, with the two trees, we saw true and false prophets. And this week, we'll see true and false disciples. Last week, true and false prophets. This week, true and false disciples. And again, I want to give us, uh, remind us of the three encouragements when we started this section. Three things that I said I want you guys to keep in your mind. One, If something Jesus says in these incredibly heavy verses scares you, let it scare you. There may be a reason that it is scaring you. If you are sitting in a house that is burning down and you close your eyes, that does nothing to change the reality of the house that's burning down around you. It might be a merciful call to repent. Don't shut your ears because things might be heavy. It's a good thing to lose sleep at night if it makes a difference for your eternity. If it scares you, let it scare you. If you're a Christian, second thing, if you are a true disciple, let this encourage you. In a very strange way, as you see the danger of the warning and you see the infinite wrath before those who are apart from Christ, let it encourage you to what he has saved you from. Be encouraged. And then thirdly, perhaps most importantly, See the merciful words of your Savior that's giving you this warning. An indifferent person doesn't bother warning you of the eternal damnation that is to come. But a merciful Savior that Jesus is does take the time to say, you are sprinting towards a cliff. Turn around. And today we're going to see another one of those merciful warnings as Jesus peers into the future and says, there will come a day you will stand before me and the entrance to the kingdom of heaven will be behind me, and I say whether you can come in or whether you must depart. And he's letting you know, here's how you can get in. That's a merciful Savior. Don't lose sight of who's talking with these heavy words. So we're going to see, again, that third example today, two claims. The claims by one group, the false disciples, one group, the true disciples. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I then will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's the scene. Jesus 
standing on the shores of Galilee, giving the Sermon on the Mount with perhaps hundreds listening to him, peers into the future when not just those standing on the shore of Galilee, but everyone in this room and everyone who has ever existed will stand before him at the gate of the kingdom of God. And he will say where we will spend eternity. Will we spend eternity with the king in the kingdom or will we depart from him forever because he does not know who we are? That's the theme Jesus is painting here. And notice, by the way, who is it that stands at the gate and gets to say whether people enter in or people must depart? It is Jesus. He's not just a carpenter who happens to be good at teaching on the shores of Galilee. This is the judge of the world. And all will stand before him one day, and he will make the final verdict of where we will spend eternity. And specifically in this passage, we're going to see two different groups, true disciples, false disciples. Both, both believe they will get into the kingdom. Both are very much skipping up to the gate of the kingdom, expecting that they will be let in, but we will only see one group will actually be let in. So we'll look at these two groups today. We'll look at the false disciples first, look at the true disciples, and then we'll quite simply ask the questions, which are you in and how can you be in the group of the true disciples? So let's look at the false disciples first. Verse 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this, this first group, as they, as they approach Jesus, these false disciples who, who believe they're true disciples, that they're expecting to get in. They come before Jesus on judgment day. And what's the first thing they bring before him? What's the first claim they make as they bring before him? The first thing we see is empty words. The first thing they claim are empty words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's the false disciples there. Lord, Lord, not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. They're calling him Lord, not just once, but twice. These are passionate so-called Christians, right? They call him Lord twice as a way to almost emphasize it, right? They are very happy to wear the badge of Christian. They would debate any Muslim on which is the true religion. They're a card-carrying church attender. They go every single Sunday, right? Their homes are filled with Mardell decorations, right? All the swirly crosses you can imagine, right? Fills their home. They read the Babylon Bee every single day, right? They've been boycotting Disney and Target long before it was trendy. These are very passionate Christians. Their Facebook is just filled with Bible verses. They're very happy to call themselves Christians. They're very happy to call him Lord even twice. But notice something here. But their lives do not match their words Their lives do not match their words. They don't do the will of the Father. Not everyone who just says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They say the right thing, but their lives prove that their words don't match 
Their lives prove their words are empty. They say, I'm on the narrow way. I love the narrow way. I crawled through that narrow gate, but their lives show they're really on the broad way. They say they're a tree that bears good fruit, but the fruit actually itself shows that they are a bad tree. Their words say, he's Lord. Their lives say, I'm Lord. Their lives do not back up the reality of their claim. So the first thing we need to see is our claims, your claims of Christianity means nothing by itself. Your claims of Christianity means nothing. Saying the right thing means nothing on its own. The apostle, the the book of the New Testament that kind of drills in on this the most is is, uh, James, the epistle of James. says, perhaps famously in James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them what they need for their body, what good is that? So faith by itself that does not have works is dead. So these false disciples, they claim Christianity, they very much say Jesus is their Lord, but they don't have a life that displays the reality of those claims. The reality of their life doesn't bolster those claims and therefore it shows their words are empty. And Jesus is quite simply saying, it doesn't matter what kind of tree you think you are, what matters is the fruit that comes from your life. James honing in on that, he even takes it a step further in verse 19. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So not only is it your claims without a life backing up those claims means nothing, even your right doctrinal belief. You're a rock-solid theologian. You're a person of truth, right? You would never be postmodern like the Wokies who love all that feeling stuff. You're a truth person, right? So are the demons. They've got great Trinitarian theology. They've got a very high Christology, but their lives don't belong to that Christ They know a lot of things about him, correct things about him. How could they not know it? They know who he is, yet their lives don't belong to him. It's a good thing to call Jesus Lord, like the false disciples do here, but it's not enough to intellectually believe something about Jesus if your life doesn't belong to him, if your life doesn't actually belong to him. So the first thing Jesus says is, if your words don't match the reality of their, your life, they're, they're empty. They're just empty words, right? This is something that, for us, uh, citizens of the buckle of the Bible belt, should be a bit sobering, right? We live in the land of Chick-fil-A. Our restaurants are Christian, right? There's a church on every corner. You probably passed around 19 driving to this one. Everyone here claims Christian in, in some form or fashion, right? When I grew up, the the way even uh, people became Christians, you just say the sinner's prayer, right? The Romans wrote, just confess, just say the right word formula and you're saved. Eternity, check, right? How you live, if you want to be godly, that's kind of a bonus thing, but write the date down of when you said the sinner's prayer in the front of your Bible. If you say the right thing, that's all that matters. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't come to me just with your 
empty words. We need a life that displays the reality of that confession. One commentator I read said, the false prophets of kind of the previous passage, they're deceivers. They go and deceive others. Here, the false disciples are self-deceived. They've lulled themselves to sleep with their empty Christian words. We think as long as we say the right thing, we're good. That's what the false disciples are believing. And Jesus is saying, don't come to me with that. Don't come to me just with empty words. You'll hear me say, I never knew you. Do not set your eternal hopes on just claims of Christianity or church membership or even right doctrinal belief if your life doesn't back up those claims, if you're not in love with that truth that you say you believe. Hear the warning. This is a merciful warning from your Savior. Don't bring that to me on judgment day. Those empty words will be very, very quickly exposed. That's not the way into the kingdom. Just to claim that I am Lord, even to passionately claim that I am Lord. So that's the first thing the false disciples bring. They bring their empty words. That doesn't get them in, so they're going to offer up a second thing. They're going to offer up uh, something else. And the next thing they offer isn't any better. They offer up their worthless works. Empty words don't get them in. Worthless works. Look at verse 22. On that day, many, don't blow by that, by the way. This will not be the mistake of a few. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So their empty claims don't do it. And so the next thing they bring is their resume. They bring my resume of my works before God, which, let's be honest, is pretty good. Right? How many else, how many of you read this passage and you were like, that seems better than me, right? I've never prophesied. If you call it teaching, I guess, maybe. Never cast out a demon, never done miracles, much less many, right? Pretty impressive. I would imagine outshines everybody in this room, outshines me for sure. And it also looks quite, kind of a lot like Jesus' own ministry. So, what's going on here? Jesus, despite this great resume, Impressive things. Jesus says, I never knew you, and all those works are worthless. They're lawlessness. What's happening here? Your empty words mean nothing if they're not backed by a transformed life. And here we see your works mean nothing if they don't flow from a transformed heart that knows him and is united to him. Your words mean nothing if the fruit is bad, if your lives don't back it up. And here, your works mean nothing if they don't flow from union with Christ, from a transformed heart that knows him. F.T. France, who's a commentator, says this, prophecy, exorcism, and miracles can hardly be described as bad fruit, but even these spiritual activities can apparently be carried out by those who still lack relationship with Jesus which is the essential basis for belonging to the kingdom of God. Busy religious activity does not equal being a disciple of Jesus. 
We've seen this all throughout Matthew 6. We see this group called the hypocrites who are praying like crazy, giving like crazy, and fasting. Right? They're doing all these religious things, these things that even seem good, these things that we are commanded to do, but what was their motivation? So that others may see, be, others may see them and others may glorify them. They do all these religious things, but the ultimate goal was their own praise, right? their own glory. Their works didn't flow from a heart that belonged to God. And here we see the false disciples making the exact same mistake. They have all these impressive works, but it doesn't flow from a heart that belongs to God, that communes with Jesus. And ultimately, any work that doesn't flow from communion with Jesus is worthless, is lawlessness. That's why these impressive things can all be declared lawless. Now, we are good Protestants. If you're new here, that's who you are, uh, right? We're good Protestants, so boo works, right? Aren't we, aren't we the people of, by faith alone and by grace alone, we talk about how your works are bad all the time, but why is that? Why are our works such an offensive thing, right? Even if we, like my little kid tries to do stuff, he fails often, but I'm like, good job, right? You, 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 you encourage him anyway. Isn't that what God does to us? Why is it so bad for us to at least try to do some good works, much less many mighty works in his name, right? So lest we assume, yeah, work's bad. I don't really know why, but let's drill in a little bit. Why are our works, why is presenting our resume before God so offensive? Why is it such a no-no in Protestantism? Why does it make Jesus angry and call uh, all the works lawlessness? Why is that? Uh, Quite simply, before sin even enters the equation for you or me, we already owe God everything. Simply because of who he is, the infinite, glorious God who always was, before there was anything, he was, and because of who we are, right? Created dirt people. The infinite, glorious God who demands worship simply because of who he is scooped up some dirt, molded it, and breathed life into it simply as an overflow of his loving heart. And so already before you've sinned, we owe him our entire lives. We don't have the next breath unless he gives it. We don't have the thoughts to dream and desire unless he gives them. We don't have the next heartbeat unless he gives them. Long before sin enters the equation, our lives are completely his then. That being the reality, then we rebel against him. We try to dethrone him and we try to enthrone ourselves. We call others away from him saying, he's a terrible God. I make a great God. We already owe him everything and then we accumulate a debt sheet that is infinite. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite wrath, much less the countless sins that you and I have accumulated before him. We already owe him everything, then we accumulate an infinite debt sheet. So when we come before him with our works as if he somehow owes us now, I've done these things for you. Where's my reward, please? And thank you. It's not only foolish, it's unthinkably arrogant. And it shows we have no clue of the depths of our own sinfulness. 
Let me give you a, a, a extreme example, but uh, applicable one. Let's imagine that uh, I killed everyone that you love. Little extreme, not going to do it in real life, but just stick with it, right? Everyone that you love, spouse, children, friends, parents, everyone that you have affection for in your life, I take away from you, and I somehow get away with it. You know it. Nobody else knows it. A couple days go by, and I knock on your door, and you open the door and see me, and if you can resist wrapping your hands around my throat long enough, I say to you, hey, I know you're probably mad, uh, and so to remedy this, I noticed you were low on gas, and so I went and filled up your car. So, we good, right, we square? You would kill me, right? And then that wouldn't even pay for it, right? How unthinkably ridiculous would that be? I'm saying everyone that you loved is worth $70. Are we good? That's you presenting your works before an infinitely holy God as if he now owes you something. What we actually owe him is infinite. And the false disciples have the nerve to come before Jesus and say, here's my resume, it's long, you're welcome. Where's the entrance to the kingdom, please? It is unthinkably arrogant and it shows they have no clue who they are. They have no clue the depths of sinfulness. They have no clue who it is they're actually standing before and calling Lord, how infinitely holy he is. Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of my favorite quotes from him is he says, you did nothing to contribute to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You did nothing to contribute to your salvation except sinning that makes it necessary for you to be saved. The false disciples clearly don't know this. They think they're pretty good, and they show up and they say, look, I fought for you, I taught for you, did a lot of great things for you. Reward, please. Where's the entrance to the kingdom that I'm sure you would love me to enter in because I'm a good person to have on your team? How ridiculous. How offensive. And Jesus here again is saying, I don't know you. None of this on your long list was for me. And anything that's not for me and by my strength is worthless, is lawlessness. It's actually more rebellion because this is ultimately for you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here again, 2,000 years later, the merciful warning of your Savior, don't come to him with your resume. Don't come to him with how many conferences you've attended or how faithfully you've served the church or how much you've given to the church or how you've schooled your kids or how you've voted or how many homeless people you helped out throughout your lifetime. Don't come to him with your resume as if he now owes you something. You'll hear the terrible words, I never knew you. All that is lawlessness if it's not for me and by me. You can pray, you can fast, you can give if it's not flowing from a heart that knows me and belongs to me. It's all lawlessness. It's all worthless. And so the false disciples, they bring these two 
things and their great claim, their empty words and their worthless works, but they don't know him. And because they don't know him, it's impossible for them to do the will of the Father. So that's the first group that comes and they hear the terrible words, I never knew you, depart from me. But there's another group. They don't feature as prominently in the text, but there is another group. It's the true disciples, the true disciples. So the false disciples come and their great claim is their empty words and their worthless works. The true disciples come and what is their claim as they stand before him? I know you and you know me. The true disciples, their only claim is I know you and you know me. What does Jesus reveal in verse 23? As he's rejecting the false disciples, what does he reveal as the criteria of getting into the kingdom, of him saying, come, enter in, instead of depart from me? What does he reveal as the criteria? Do we know each other? Do I know you or do I not? There is an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and even liking what you know and knowing and knowing him. The false disciples and perhaps many of us know Jesus like you would a political candidate, right? They, they hear some good stuff, they like him, right? They even like him as the head of their little group, right? They might canvas the neighborhoods to say, Vote for this guy. He's got great policies. He's got great values that I can really get on board with. You might fight against people who have different values, but ultimately, he's still a stranger to them. They like his policies. They like his values. They like his leadership, but they, they don't know him. They've never sat at his table. They don't know the depths of his heart, nor he the depths of theirs. If they bump into each other on the street, they would be a stranger to him. He's just a figure that they know a lot about. That's the false disciples. They know a lot about him. They call him Lord. They like him, but they don't know him. Knowing in the scriptures is this idea of, of it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's, it's intimate communion. It's relational knowledge. Uh, early, if you remember, if you have this detail of a memory, uh, in Matthew, and Matthew's describing how uh, Joseph and Mary haven't consummated their marriage yet. They were betrothed, but hadn't consummated the marriage. He says, uh, Joseph had not known Eve yet. It's this incredibly intimate relational term, not just intellectually knowing about. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, in, in another sermon, talks about there's two ways to know honey's sweetness. Uh, you can observe it, right? you can study it, you can have a rational understanding that honey is sweet, you've done all the research, you've, you've seen people's reaction perhaps when they, when they consume it, you can, you can know rationally honey is sweet pretty confidently, or you could uh, taste it. You could taste and know honey. And over and over and over again, the scriptures plead with you, taste and see the sweetness of your Savior. Let your soul be satisfied like a rich meal. Come to Jesus and know he's put more joy in your heart than anything else. Even when their grain and their wine abound, you've put more joy in my heart. In your presence, there's fullness of 
joy. Come taste and see and know your Savior. Commune with him. Know him. There's a huge difference, an eternal difference between being a big fan of Jesus, of knowing a lot about him, of appreciating him from afar, of loving his ideas, and actually knowing him. And the true disciples have tasted and seen. They know the Savior they stand before. Right? They've gazed upon his loveliness and his beauty. They've stood in awe of his majesty. Their lives are his. They live and move and have their being in him. They abide in him. All the fruit they bear, they bear because they abide in the vine. They know him. Alan Chapel, who's an Australian New Testament professor, says this, knowing about God is not the same as knowing him. I can accept the truth of propositions about God without knowing the God of whom they speak. That is the faith of the demons. Biblical faith, by contrast, is not only a believing that, it is also a believing in. It is more than a response to truth, it is engaging with a person. Christians are not captivated by a system of ideas or in love with a body of doctrine. Christian spirituality is relational. The convictions that are precious to us matter precisely because they are means by which we know and love the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love doctrine? Do you love theology? Is it because it leads you to know him and drink more deeply of him? Salvation, your salvation, if you're a Christian, is not a what, it's a who. It's not what you've done that's going to get you into the kingdom. It's who you know. Do you know the king of the kingdom? That's the difference between the false disciples and the true disciples. But, oh man, never going to get through this. There's something even greater than knowing Jesus that the true disciples bring to the gates of the kingdom. There's something even greater that they claim other than I know you. And it's not only that they do know him, it's that he knows them. The false disciples, as they stand before him, they hear the terrible, horrible words, I never knew you, depart from me. And the true disciples, although we don't see it in the text here, there you are. I know you. They hear their name called. One of my uh, favorite passages, we looked at it last Easter, uh, and all of Scripture is, is John 20, where uh, they find the empty tomb, Mary finds the empty tomb, and angels show up and kind of tell her what's happened, but that doesn't, that doesn't solve her angst, and so she's running around looking for Jesus, and she actually bumps into him, uh, but she's so, she doesn't know that it's him. She thinks it's the gardener, and they're even talking, and she doesn't recognize that it's him. And one word opens her eyes and makes her recognize him. It's when Jesus says to her, Mary. It's when he calls her name. Because the reality of Jesus Christ is that he's the good shepherd and his sheep know his name. He says, they're right here. No one snatches them from the palm of my hand. I call them 
and they know my voice. I know them. I'm the good shepherd. I've never lost one sheep. All of our knowledge of him springs from him knowing us. J.I. Packer, uh, in his great book, Knowing God, says this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palm. (laughs) I'm going to take a water break, and y'all read that. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm start over. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palm of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustaining initiative in knowing me. When you were far off and did not care one thing for him, he came after you. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. All of our knowing him, true disciples, springs from him initiating and knowing us. Before the Father said, let there be light, he knew your name. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head. There's no second where Jesus' eyes aren't fixed on you, where he's not interceding for you right now at the Father's right hand, where you are not consciously in his mind. You are his. He's the good shepherd. He never loses his sheep. So notice the two claims The false disciples show up and they claim their empty words and their resume. The true disciples show up and they say, my claim is you. I know you. And before they can even get the words out of their mouth, he's already called their name. He knows them. Their works are not their claim. He is their claim. What will be your claim when you stand before him? Every one of you will stand before him. What will be your claim on this day? Will it be our great works or the fact that you know him? Do you know him? And does he know you? And if you're a true disciple who does know him, do you live in the reality? Do you live and move and have your being and rest in and glory in the reality that the Creator of the universe knows your name. Colossians 1, everything was made by Jesus and for Jesus. The trillions of galaxies that he is currently right now holding together, yet he can also hold your name in his mind. That he treasures you as his blood-bought bride. That he has a love for you that surpasses all knowledge. Do you, do you live in that unthinkably glorious reality? Because if you're in this true disciple group, that is your reality. Everyone in this room wants to be known and loved. 
And I uh, think it's Tim Keller talks about in his marriage book, Meaning in Marriage. If you, if you get those out of order, things go you know, out of whack. If you're, if you're loved but not known, that's cheap, right? That'll fade quickly if you're not known. If you're known and not loved, that's terrifying. That's all of our greatest fear. But to be fully known and to be fully loved is our greatest joy. And there's only one person who fully, truly, completely knows you better than you know yourself and loves you with a love that surpasses all knowledge. And that's this king that we're standing before. Jesus is the only one who truly knows you, knows every thought you've ever had, every wicked thing you've ever done or thought about doing. He knows the depths of that sin and has perfectly set his love on you. J.I. Packer again. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. It's based on reality. It's utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. There's nothing you can do that can shock God. He already knows before he chose you. So that nothing you can do can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and that I am glad. And that he sees more corruption in me that I see in myself, which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, an equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. He knows you completely and truly. It's based on reality of who you are, the depths of your sin that you would never dare peer into. He knows and he sent his son so that his love can be set on you perfectly. There's nothing you can do to surprise him. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards you, towards those who he's made his children. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. No height, nor depth, nothing in all of the world. To know him and to be known by him isn't just your ticket into the kingdom. It's our greatest joy. It's quite literally what you were made for, to know him and enjoy him and glorify him. And to tie this all together, it's the only way to actually do that verse 21 requirement. It's the only way to actually do the will of the Father. When you first read this passage, it looks like the false disciples have works, and then there's other works that Jesus just isn't telling us, called doing the will of the Father. So what is it? It seems like either way, there's works. And again, we're Protestant. Boo, works. So what's, what's going on here? Uh, you are, to freak you out a little bit, you are meant 
to do the will of the Father. You are meant to bear fruit in this life. You are meant to do works in this life, but not so that you might earn his favor, but because you've earned his favor already. It's meant to be through him. He is the vine that you abide in before you bear fruit. He is the infinite well you are united to before your hearts can spring forth springs of living water. Ephesians gives us this this beautiful picture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, famous passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, right? Boo Catholics, there you go, right? Totally grace, totally faith, not works. How can we make it any clearer? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that she could walk in him. You see the order there. He's put his favor upon you. He has chosen you. He has called you na- your name completely by his grace. He's adopted you completely by the works of his son, created you and united you to his son. And so now the fruit you bear, you get no praise for because it's still God that's done it. Created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared even beforehand that you should walk in him. The works of your life flow from your union with Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote wrote, the majority of the New Testament, is kind of the perfect example of this. At his conversion, he he, he characterizes his his conversion like this, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Old Paul, great, awesome Pharisee, tons of works, Paul, dead. The life I now live, I live completely through him. I've been united to him and everything I do is through him and for him and by his strength, not mine, right? The most famous out of context passage of all time. I do all things, how? Through Christ who gives me strength. There's two other verses I want you to look at. Look at Philippians 3.12. This gives us a good picture. This is right after uh, Paul's Paul's resume, that he, he says, you know, Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, and it's all rubbish so that I might know him and I might uh, be like him in a resurrection like his. And he says this in verse 20, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, right? I work, I do a lot of hard things. I give a lot of effort. I press on to make it my own, but Why? What is all that work of Paul flowing from? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see the order. United to Christ and the fruit that comes from my life comes from him. One more, Colossians 1. Paul's talking about his his ministry, the, the efforts of his ministry. Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want people to look like Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil and struggle, and I do a lot of work. But look at this next line, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. It is impossible to do the will of the Father unless you've first been united to the Son. And then by him and for him, your life can bear fruit. 
that's still completely by his grace because he's the one that's giving you the strength to do it. You see that order. Don't reverse that or you'll be like the false disciples who say, here's what I did by my strength and for myself. So Paul does it by Christ. Every Christian works and toils not to earn God's favor, not to earn entrance into the kingdom, but because they already have citizenship in the kingdom. Christ has already come and said, I know you, you're my sheep, nothing can ever separate you from me, now live through me. That's the difference between the true disciples and the false disciples. Both call him Lord, both pray and fast and give and teach and fight his enemies, but the false disciples do it by their strength and for themselves. The true disciples do it by him and for him. So, do you know him? Does he know you? Is your life his? Is he truly your Lord or are those just empty words? Does the fruit of your life tell a different story than your passionate claim that he is your Lord? Does he mold you or do you mold him? Are you doing your thing, right, and you, you, you encounter a scripture that says what you're doing is wrong, and so you'll remold Jesus to kind of soften him a little bit, right, not be such a killjoy. I'm having fun, right, don't you want me to? Do you mold him or does he mold you? My life is yours to do with what you will. I'm the one being conformed into your image, not the other way around. What is your claim for entrance into the kingdom? Is it your efforts or is he your claim? Is your claim, there's nothing I could ever do. It's the fact that for some unfathomable reason, you know me and chose me. Do you know him? Does he know you? Your eternity hangs on that question. And if you're not a Christian, either you have no interest, you're not someone who even says, Lord, you're like the third group that we don't really see, or you might be a little bit aware, if you haven't closed your eyes in the burning house, you're in that false disciple group. The good news for you is we're not at that day yet, and this merciful Savior is beckoning you, come. He is eagerly waiting to know you and for you to know him. You don't have to hear the terrifying words, I never knew you. You can come stand in awe of his majesty. You can come taste and see of his sweetness and see the depth of his love for sinners. You can run into his open arms and as you do, run into the open gate of the kingdom. And if you are a Christian, if you are a true disciple, come and know him. Come and keep tasting and seeing of his goodness. The Christian life, so often, you could just characterize it as growing in your capacity of taking in how infinitely rich Jesus is. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes in Prince Caspian, which I think uh, is the next book he wrote after Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The, the kids, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter, had been gone from Narnia for a year and had come back. They got pulled back into Narnia, and they encounter Aslan, again, the lion that is, is Jesus. Uh, and, and Lucy, the little girl, says to Aslan, hey, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, no, that's because you're older. And she says, you're not actually bigger. And he says, no, no, you'll find the more you grow, the bigger I will seem. 
which is a beautiful picture of sanctification. The more you grow, just the more your eyes are opened to his infinite beauty and glory. Keep tasting, keep seeing. Jesus is an inexhaustible ocean of joy that you were created to swim in. Don't just get your ticket into the kingdom and turn away. Keep coming to know him. See that the one who created the universe, yet he he stoops down to let little children come to him. Or the one who is infinitely holy, and yet he stoops down to heal the leper. The one whom, though you've rebelled against him, and you tried to displace him, and you tried to call others away from him, still gave his life for you and takes you up in his hands and says, I know you. Come and live in the joy that is in me. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, whether we have never wanted anything to do with your son, or we've quite simply just been a distant fan. Jesus has been someone that we know a lot about. Uh, Or if he is someone that we know, we pray that you would open all of our eyes, whether it's to conversion or simply to just a greater capacity of his joy. I pray that you would give us a taste of the fellowship that is in him that we will one day have for all of eternity, but now we just, we know in part, I pray that you would do that. That that is a supernatural work. The most any human's words can do is just briefly stir some emotions for a little bit, but your spirit can transform hearts. And so we ask you, Lord, to transform our hearts to where we love your son. Everything is an end uh, or a means to his end. We, we love theology because it leads us more to him. We love uh, Christian disciplines because it leads us more to him. We love coming to church because we get to hear from him and, and just lay our lives bare before him and let us live through him truly. As your word says, uh, your true disciples do. Do that in our hearts, Father, we pray in your son's name. Amen.